Time to talk parenting. Our expert Nathan Wallace is with us now. Kia ora, Nathan. Kia ora, Susie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, we're talking today about what mums and dads are most worried about. Quite a few people also getting in touch with us on 2101 with some questions on this uh, for okay. you, which hopefully we'll get to um, across the next few minutes. Um, firstly, we'll ca- I mean, what do parents worry about? What are the main things? Well, I think it was striking that 80% of parents report that they, you know, their kid faces at least one physical or mental health issue. So it, but they have sort of sleep, behavioural problems and viral issues. But, yeah, parents seem to be overwhelmingly concerned about the mental health of their children. I mean, like 54%. That's a slight increase on the 50% they reported last year. So that's, that features highly on the list. Mm, if we're talking about sleep, perhaps that's a, not a bad place to start. We've got a question in about that, actually. Okay. Um, This one says, I'm a mum of two small children and active in lots of mum groups online. I'm concerned about the rise of, in quotes, experts in baby sleep and who these people are and their ability to give advice that parents listen to unquestionably. There's a lot of sleep training, in quotes, out there with no basis Mm. in science. What do you think? Yeah, I think that they're right to be concerned because there's no base. Sleep training is really for the benefit of the parent. You know, when you see how rapidly the brain grows in the, especially the first year of life, this emphasis to get the baby sleeping through the night and, um, you know, it's not really founded in science. The brain's growing so rapidly, the baby's probably at a huge advantage to wake up four times a night and be, prop, you know, propped up with breast milk uh, to help that rapidly growing brain. I just think there's a thing in our culture that says the earlier you do things, the better. So, if your antenatal class gets together after the baby's born, there tends to be an unspoken competition over whose baby's going to walk first, an unspoken competition over whose baby's sleeping through the night first. And they're both good examples of, you know, the baby that actually uh, walks first is probably the child that's most likely to be hyperactive in the group. So it's not really a competition you want to win, you know? Yeah, so, certainly. Yeah, this race thing is just a cultural thing. It's not really a research-based thing. Yeah, it certainly is uh, something that I think a lot of parents feel very pressured about, especially in those early days. But, of course, sleep... I remember one person once saying to me, um, you know, it's not just about the baby sleeping, it's about the family sleeping. Yeah, that's true. But I think the baby is more vulnerable and at a much more, you know, that first thousand days of your life is so impactful on the rest of your life that I think probably the baby's needs have to come before the rest of the family's needs when they're in that first thousand days. I mean, that's what families naturally do. Of course, other people's, you know, mum and dad need to have some sleep to be able to um, look after all the other kids. Um, but I don't think it's just a matter of automatically getting that baby to sleep through the night as soon as possible for the well-being of the rest of the family. We have to really put the well-being of the baby first, I think, especially in that first year of life. And so how much sleep do children actually need? It does vary according to um, you know the different ages of children, because it varies. Teenagers, for instance, need a whole lot more sleep. Their sleep needs go up again. Um, but yeah, they, it's hard to answer scientifically because different cultures expect different amounts of sleep. Um, you know, um, Scandinavian cultures expect their babies to sleep a lot, and they do correspondingly sleep much more than we see in the rest of the Western world. In Asian countries, it's much more normal to leave your children up to late hours of the night. So it's really about um, just making sure that your individual child has enough sleep, that they're functioning properly. Yeah, that's the thing, because it can vary so much from one child to the next, not just the quantity of sleep, but also the pattern of sleep, you know, whether they're a napper or whether it's a, a much longer stretch during so the night. So true, Susie. Yep, so true. Um, mm. Very hard to gauge that one, but if you are running into trouble with um, children sleeping, I guess not sleeping enough, what kind of um, pointers do you have? 
Well, I think it's understanding that you don't go to sleep for eight hours a night. You have about four sleep cycles. So there's about three or four times a night where we come close to waking. And what we've done as adults is we've learned to link our sleep cycles together. So it's important to understand you're teaching a child to link their sleep cycles together, not to sleep solidly for eight hours. I mean, mums often don't sleep solidly for eight hours. They they wake up in between sleep cycles and check the kids. You know, um, during pregnancy, they're often waking up in between sleep cycles um, to, you know, to, in between, yeah, to go to the toilet and stuff. And that's like your body's way of getting you ready to be woken up three or four times a night. So um, do things like have the baby's bassinet really close to the bed. So as soon as the baby starts to stir, you can reach over and, I mean, you might put the breast in their mouth or you might um, just stroke their hair or something. But you're encouraging them not to fully wake up. So if you can get the baby to go back to sleep without being fed, then you're encouraging them to link those sleep cycles together. Whereas if they're down in a room down the other end of the house and wake up and start crying and you're trying to do a crying it out, I mean, that child's really learning to wake up fully in between their sleep cycles. So it's the opposite to what I'd recommend to do. Mm. Yeah. If we can talk a little bit about mental health, you touched on that at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. This is a big concern for parents. I think the biggest concern for parents, isn't it? And, yep. and it can be very hard to know... How best to support your children if they're um, going through some mental health strife? Yeah, because it's not just a, an algorithm that we can say this is why it equals mental health. I mean, there is factors that come up all the time. Um, that's connection to extended family members. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s, 80% of people lived in the same area as their grandparents and their aunties and uncles. Now it's something like 25%. But that is a key feature in your kids' mental health. So, I mean, practical tips you can give parents straight away. A a child, including teenagers, that come from a home that has a regulated bedtime, that helps with mental health. So don't just let your kids, when they're teenagers, go to bed and go to sleep when they want to, because they often don't get the required sleep. And it's the fundamental things like sleep and diet and exercise that are really the biggest contributors to your mental health. So having a regulated bedtime. Um, Having your child be able to share their opinion about something or to have a voice. So that can be, you know, at the tea table talking about what was your best thing, what was the worst thing. It can mean just actually making the time when your eight-year-old does articulate their rather radical or completely misinformed theories on climate change. It's giving them the time to articulate those because having the practice and the time available to formulate what your opinion is and being taken seriously, that's, that's aligned with really good mental health. A lot of it's about how we respond as parents. You know, there's three parenting styles. There's the brick wall style, that says mm. shut up and do as you're told. There's the jellyfish style that can't put in place any boundaries and tends to let the kids run a bit wild. But then the ideal one in the literature is this backbone style, which is a backbone gives you support and structure, but it is responsive and flexible moment by moment. So that parenting style, allowing our kids some some freedom to articulate their opinion, no matter how weird it is, um, and yeah, sort of negotiating what the boundaries are or negotiating realities with children, their features of a child that has you know tends to have good mental health and be resilient. Uh, a couple of questions around, um, I suppose, confidence um, and social skills that play in here. This one says, yep. my daughter's 12. She doesn't seem to have much self-esteem or self-belief. She attaches herself intensely to friendships and her mood's governed about how well the friendship's going. She isn't sporty, so I can't really encourage right. her into team sports. Yep. Um, she doesn't really want to do anything, though. So how do I help build her self-confidence and belief in herself? Yeah, often it's about what we call in the, in the literature is labelled as dispositions. The dispositions that a child has will affect their self-esteem. You know, and what they were doing between two and seven is really where we find the foundation of those dispositions. And if children were doing right-wrong things, with right and wrong answers, very black and white thinking, that tends to be associated with lower self-esteem. So by the time they're 12, they can have a very black and white understanding of I've got to be the best at it, 
or I don't want to do it at all. So really, what you can do with those kids to encourage self-esteem, I mean, there's the obvious stuff of things that they're good at, allowing them to do those things and allowing them to, to excel at stuff. But it's also, I think, just overall encouraging them to do activities that don't have right-wrong answers. The arts, you know, dance and theatre, um, conversations of what you have at the table. If you say, what's the capital of Fiji, there's one right and wrong answer. Whereas if you're having conversations like, what do you think the tooth fairy looks like? You know, um, conversations like that that don't really have a right and wrong answer but just rich in discussion um, and you know, lead to animated conversations at the tea table, those are the things that we associate with better mental health. So it helps to build kids' self-esteem. What I'm saying is they don't have to be right about what they're saying. There is no right answer to what the tooth fairy is like, but for them to be articulate and talk about that and express that for a few minutes at the table and be taken, you know, listened to and taken seriously, whereas as serious as anyone can be taken when they're talking about the tooth fairy, but those are the things that... Uh, we can do to help you know, bolster their self-esteem and make them feel better about themselves. It's really about them f- having their voice valued. Indeed. Another one in, um, in a similar sort of area, I suppose, about social skills and, of course, um, schools having just gone back. Uh, I wonder if that's perhaps uh, a bit of an impetus to this question. You know, how can we help um, children make new friends as teenagers? Uh, because, of course, it's yeah. harder when you don't connect with the parents in the same way as you do when coordinating right. in primary school. Yeah, because the parents used to help facilitate a lot of that, didn't they, by getting together for play mm. dates and stuff. I think it is about um, a lot of it's extracurricular clubs, you know, joining sports clubs and things. That's often how children, it doesn't have to be sports clubs if they're not sporty. It might be the debate team or the theatre group, you know. Um, but it's giving kids opportunities outside of class to connect with other people. That's often where we find them having friends. Um, make your home a bit more child-friendly so that they want to bring people back, encourage them to have overnight stays. I mean, for teenagers, that might be that you actually stay out of it a bit because, you know, you're really embarrassing now that they're a teenager. So, <laughs> um, so whereas you might have played an active role before, it might be about being cool by just staying away and leaving, greeting the child when they come, but leaving them in their room and delivering the popcorn and not trying to stay and have conversations and stuff. Cause, um, yeah, so adjusting to your child's level and making it easy for making your home socially you know, um, pleasant to be at for both your child and the other child. Mm. Mm. Now, cost of living's uh, a big situation and, and really impacting all sorts of our aspects of our lives at the moment. But of course, if people are struggling financially, this sort of strain mm-hmm. is really placed right across the family, isn't it? It does. And it, it just puts everything more stressful across the board. But it's remembering, I mean, we are in a good country, you know, relatively good country to be poor. There are still lots of free things that you can do with kids. There's still parks and, you know, stay attuned to local Facebook groups, local community groups, because they're always putting on local events that are funded by other people or are free and easy to access. So you take full advantage of those. But it is about, you know, stress is really the big um, killer of, of things in the family. So doing things are going to alleviate stress. You know, going for a regular family dinner walk. You know, after you finish dinner, you all go for a fam- as a family for a walk around the block. Those things are free and they tend to really keep a family um, tight and resilient. Also, um, I guess, in this sort of territory, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's the kind of thing where you maybe don't see the stress until it's manifesting as a, a kind of a behaviour problem. Right, Would that be yeah. fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it depends on your level of communication with the child. I always encourage this thing with parents called a mate date, where the kids have 10 minutes a week where you sit down with them one-on-one and none of your parenting rules apply. Um, you know, you're actually, the kids just own you for 10 minutes. So, you know, if they just want to play PlayStation, you sit there for 10 minutes and you watch the PlayStation. But um, 
But once the kids know and can predict that regularly they have your attention for the 10 minutes of each week, it's only 10 minutes, uh, they will start to open up to you in that time because they're not scared of consequences or being corrected or told they're not allowed to be rude because all those rules are out the window. They can say what they want. And again, those children, yeah, they learn to articulate. They're associated with higher self-esteem. And you just know what's going on in the kid's head before it has to manifest as a problem. Mm. Uh, now, also from this survey, there are some quite stark differences between ethnic groups that are highlighted. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, that's one of the things I think the NIB State of the Nation um, survey is it's, it's an interesting aspect of that. You know, like we see, uh, what is it, 24% of Māori parents are concerned that their children are going to face prejudice growing up, whereas the average population is only really about 11%. Um, you see Asian parents um, far more concerned about education and um, than other parents. Interestingly, the Pacific Island parents, there's a much larger percentage of them that are worried about their children's future financial security. I think it's something like, again, 24%, and the rest of the population's, you know, less than half that. Indeed. And um, something else, actually, just to um, talk about on this sort of territory is mm-hmm. how to, you know, how should parents talk to their children, with their children, about this about yeah. these kinds of fears that they have. I think it is a good idea to talk, because often we dismiss it and think they're only children, they're not really thinking about that stuff. But, you know, this NIB survey and lots of other research are showing children are quite aware of those issues. So giving them an opportunity to talk about them and express what their concerns are. Often, you know, we have a saying in around mental health that um, 90% of it is just about getting it out of their head. So you don't necessarily have to solve it or tell them what their social, political, you know, stance should be. Just giving them the opportunity to articulate and say it is often uh, beneficial. But, um, yeah, so, you know, parents model talking about that stuff. Have conversations with your kids. Ask them what do they think about, you know. I mean, research shows that they're concerned about some things like climate change. So give your child the opportunity to articulate what is their concern about the future. Is it climate change? Is it experiencing prejudice? You know, if they say those things, then you've got an opportunity as a family to talk about, well, how will I respond to that? If I am treated with prejudice, what's the best way and the way that I'm going to maintain most of my mana and walk out of this with my head held high? What's the best way to respond? Our old um, chief science advisor to the Prime Minister, Sir Peter Gluckman, he did some research on specifically how to talk to teenagers. And he found that one of the best ways to change, because they've got a different brain than the rest of us, so we have to interact differently. So one of the best methods of actually preparing these kids to be resilient, especially teens, was a method called rehearsal. And that means just exactly what we've just said, just practising that stuff. Okay, if someone does treat you prejudicially, someone calls you a negative word, how are you going to respond? And when you have that conversation around the dinner table, you might get, you know, you get some silly responses first. Oh, no, I'll just smack them in the head. But then you've got a chance to be able to say, well, actually, is that going to de-escalate the situation? Is that going to leave your mana intact? Is that the best response? And after, you know, five minutes conversation, you'll find that kids will go away from the table with three or four really good strategies for actually how to respond to that. So they're much more armed to, and prepared for what's going to happen. Now, I'm going to circle back to sleep, because I have to say, what you were talking about a little bit earlier on has, yep. seems to have proved somewhat controversial with our listeners this morning. Right, okay. Yep. Um, quite a few people getting in touch saying, um, all well and good to tell us not to sleep train, but many of us have to juggle work and childcare. You're no good to your family yep. or your employer if you're sleep deprived. Someone else That's saying, right. um, I suffered postnatal depression triggered by sleep deprivation. Um, uh, I think his assertion that parents put their baby sleep above anyone else's is dangerous. What do you think? What do you say? Well, because it is a multifaceted thing. Um, and they're right. You can't, if, if 
parents are completely dog-tied and can't look after the other kids. So I'm not saying never to do sleep training. I'm just saying, I just meant that I think the baby's needs are a wee bit more than other people's. But you do have to weigh it out with the whole family. So if you were sleep training, um, yeah, I would leave the child for a longer and longer period of time. I wouldn't just go cold turkey and leave them screaming. I would, you know, um, leave them only crying for a minute, then leave them crying for a couple of minutes, then leave them crying for five minutes. I'm not saying anyone's done anything wrong by doing sleep training. I've, you know, participated in sleep training with my kids as well. Um, I'm just saying that if you've got the supports, getting the, if the grandparents are available, if there's other people available to help take the kids to school in the morning, I wouldn't immediately put the stress on the newborn baby. I'd try using other whānau networks and stuff first, but... I know in the real world we have to compromise all those things together and, you know, come up with a solution that works for the whole family. A quick final question on devices, and I know this is something that we potentially go round and round on, but how yep. much device time, one listener asks, is too much? My preteen is addicted, uh, the texture right. says, and would exhibit withdrawal symptoms when we put boundaries in. Yeah. Well, if you're under two, any time on a device is too much time. Children under two don't need to be looking at screens, they're flashing lights. Um, For the rest of after that, because I mean, that's nice and strong in the research, but there is a correlation between anxiety, depression and the amount of time you spend on a screen. So I think the, the, the most solid research that I think helps parents is the research that tells us if your child comes from a home where they've got two hours a day device free time. So that might be between four and six, you don't have devices, you're helping getting tea ready. If a child comes from a home where there's two hours a day device-free time, that takes them outside the risk group for children of having anxiety and depression. It doesn't make them immune, but just makes them have the same percentage risk as someone who didn't have a device. So we don't have to get rid of it altogether, we just have to make sure our kids have two hours a day device-free time. Everything in moderation, huh? Yeah. Thank you very much, Nathan Wallace there, educator and parenting expert.